Thank you all for joining us. Uh, thrilled to be here with you. We love continuing to learn with everyone when not in person than, um, than by Zoom. In some ways, even better um, in, in, in many ways. Um, in other ways, we, we, we miss being together. And thanks, Stan, for this recommendation here um, for, for today. Um, this is a, a topic we have uh, I've thought a lot about, and there's quite a bit to say about. So we're going to do our best within an hour, as usual, with a presentation and then a chance for questions um, from our, our scholar today. We thank Temple Solel for being the partner congregation for today's program. And I know the clergy were planning on attending, uh, uh, or someone uh, from the synagogue, but I think they may be caught up in the moment. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the intro here. Um, and uh, we're thrilled to... Uh, uh, to engage in this learning. I want to remind you also that you can post questions and thoughts over there in the chat, as you know, and, um, and then you'll have the opportunity to unmute yourself when it's time for questions later. Um, I'm not, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the whole bio of oh, father today. <laughs> I, know, I, I know, Rabbi Gelman, you were, you were coming for that, really. I only want to hear the bio. That was why I agreed to do this. <laughs> it's like a eulogy, but you don't have to be dead. It's great. <laughs> so uh, we will uh, post the bio over there in the side. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's quite a great stuff here, so it, so it is helpful to read it all. But I will, but there's a few highlights here I'll, I'll share. In 1972, Rabbi Dr. Mark Gelman was the youngest rabbi ever ordained by the Hebrew Union College. Wow, uh, that, that, that's pretty cool. And uh, he presently serves as the Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Beth Torah in Melville, New York, um, he, where he was elected to the pulpit in 1981, the year I was born. Wonderful year. <laughs> Rabbi Gelman was the president of the New York Board of Rabbis during the, the attacks of 9-11 and delivered one of the three principal speeches at the 9-11 memorial service, September 24th, 2001. Uh, several times as 50 best rabbis in America by Newsweek, and um, along with his friend, Monsignor Tom Hartman, Rabbi Gelman formed the God Squad in 1987. You may have heard of the, the famous God Squad. So check that out if you haven't heard of that. And uh, do I understand Ed Feinstein? Rabbi Ed Feinstein is a part of that in some way now also? Yeah, we have a, a regular Shabbos morning uh, Torah study oh, very good. that we, you can tune into at vbs.org. Very good, very good. Uh, he holds a PhD in philosophy from Northwestern University. And here's my favorite part of the bio. Despite his many and varied accomplishments, Rabbi Gelman has never been the best rabbi, nor has he been the best golfer. But for many years, Rabbi Mark Gelman was definitively the best rabbi golfer in America. No question. <laughs> and he writes for Golf Digest and is on their ranking panel. So, um, so with that, I hope you will virtually, silently join me in welcoming um, Rabbi Gelman to discuss this uh, very interesting topic of do Jews believe in heaven? So thank you, Rabbi Gelman, for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Shmuley. So it's, first of all, it's, it's, it's not really a topic. Um, this is a, a purpose. This is a destiny. This is a raison d'etre. This is, let me just say it simply, this is the reason we are Jewish. And it is also the reason that Christians are Christian. And it's also the reason that Muslims are Muslim, and Hindus are Hindu, and Buddhists are Buddhist. It is the central reason why people are religious. In fact, according to Plato, it's the motivation for all philosophy. And that question is, what happens to me after I die? And hope that death is not the end of us is the reason uh, we come together. Now, this may not be immediately obvious to you, and it wasn't to me, I must say. I credit my dear, my dearly departed friend, my beloved brother and partner, uh, Monsignor Thomas Hartman, for enlightening me in, into this 
very, very important uh, lacuna, this, this important uh, hole in, in Jewish teaching. And that was when he said to me, Mark, I never hear you talking about heaven. I've, he used to come and, and hear my sermons and sit on the bima. It freaked people out to see a priest there, but they got used to it over time. And he said, you know, you, you talk about lots of interesting topics, but you never talk about heaven. And then when Tommy and I were together, and we, we spoke widely around the country, as the God Squad, we were uh, the religion reporters for ABC Good Morning America, so we were on TV a lot, and we were regulars on that on the I Miss in the Morning program. So we were we were all over the place, and we spoke to a lot of people and to many Christian audiences or audiences with lots of Christians. And there were always questions, and the most common question that was asked by far by Christians of me was, Rabbi, do Jews believe in heaven? And I, I was stunned because I always knew that Judaism taught about heaven. And I believed in heaven. We call it, let's get the terms right here. We call it Olam Haba, sometimes as in the El Malay Rachamim prayer, which we'll look at later. It's called Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> but we call it the world to come, Olam Haba. Christians call it heaven. Judaism teaches about this, and I'll, I'll give you the texts in a moment. But the first thing I want to present to you, and it's really a question that I hope you can answer in our question and answer period. And that question is, why don't rabbis speak about this? Just ask yourself, have, how many sermons you've heard from rabbis? It's probably a lot. And how many of those sermons dealt with life after death? Also ask yourself this question and, and, and help me to understand it because this is one of many questions in this area that I really can't answer. How, you've, you've been to many funerals, sadly. And in the eulogies that are presented, how many times have you heard the rabbi or anyone giving a eulogy? Because often now family members give eulogies as well. How many times have you heard anyone say, Moishe is going to go to the Olam Haba. Moishe is going to go to the world to come now that he's passed away. He'll be in heaven with God, in the Olam Haba with God. How many times have you heard that? Now, it's hard for me to answer because I was always doing the funerals and I would always say it. It was a little strange when I would say Moish is in heaven with God because a lot of times the dead guy wasn't named Moish. Moish. So people got really upset and they would say, who's Moish? Who's, who are you talking about? But aside from that, that problem, which caused certain difficulties for me in my career, the basic question that I present to you is simple. Why is it that Judaism teaches that death is not the end of us? Plato thought this is the only important question in life. Why is it that every religion believes that death is not the end of us and speaks about it? And why is it that we, as Jews, overwhelmingly don't believe in the world to come? And that is unquestionably true. It's unquestionably true that we teach it in Judaism. It's part of the foundations of our faith. It is also unquestionably true that Jews don't believe in life after death. The majority, the vast, vast majority. 
and I take responsibility for this, and I hope other rabbis will as well. I have at the moment a kind of missionary zeal uh, to revive in Jews and in rabbis and in congregations um, the topic of life after death. And, and this is the reason. It is the reason we come to shul, the reason we come together as Jews, the reason Christians come together as Christians, is to gain collective and communal hope that death is not the end of us. The greatest fear is the fear of death, of human finitude, as Plato called it. The the fact that our bodies are impermanent and we are dust and ashes and from dust we are and to dust we return. But the question remains, is this it? Is this one trip through life it? Our only chance. Now, in my column, which you can also access, by Googling, it's, it's syndicated by Tribune throughout the country, but if your town doesn't get it in its newspapers, uh, you, can, you can look it up and Google God Squad articles by Mark Gelman. And in last week's article, I've been having a, it, it's a question and answer from readers. We've been talking about reincarnation. So there is an ancillary question here of, all right, if there's something after death, do we get to live life again in another body? And, and Jewish mysticism says yes, the majority of uh, Jewish teachings, mainstream rabbinic teachings says no, this is, this is our one chance. But now back to the question of why this is the most important question. You never hear rabbis talk about it. You never hear it raised in a funeral where you need to hear it. Why? Why would we give up something that is so hopeful, so inspiring, that addresses directly our greatest fear in life, and we give it up to give movie reviews or political commentaries or God knows what rabbis speak about. When I was president of the New York Board of Rabbis, I traveled around a lot, listened to a lot of sermons. They were, some of them were very, very good, but they just didn't address it. And then people wonder, well, why don't people come to shul? because you know our numbers are way down, forget about COVID, before COVID, our numbers are way, way lower than Christian attendance, which is also lower than it has been, but much higher than ours. Why is it? And the answer is, well, if the rabbis were more inspiring, if they were more blah, 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 they lay it on the rabbis always. And I, I just think, it comes down to this. If you, were, if, if you were going to a store and you going to buy bananas and the guy in the fruit department said, look, we, we really don't have any bananas today, but you should look at the apples. They're really good. Get some apples today. And you say, yeah, well, I'm sure they're nice. I came to get bananas. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you don't want apples, but you know what? The artichokes are in season. Buy some artichokes. And you say, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I came here to get bananas. And this is, I think, the fundamental reason why Jews don't come to shul. I don't want to overstate it. There are other reasons. But this is big. In our hearts, we are coming to hear a sermon that will give us hope in the face of death. Now, that, that's not just our death, 
the fear of our death, most likely it's the fear of the death of people we love, either the death of people who have already died or might die or we fear they may die. And we're coming for that. It's in our hearts, but we can't articulate it because we don't know. We, we, are, we are too uninformed to even articulate our deepest needs. But we know we're here for bananas and we know we're not getting them. So let's, let me try to unwrap some of the historical reasons because they're very interesting. Why Jews don't believe in heaven, even though Judaism never wavered in its belief that death is not the end of us. The first, I think rabbis can admit this, and young rabbis who, who asked me to mentor them admit it to me. They said, look, Rabbi Gelman, this, I know you want me to speak about Olam Abba, but it sounds so Christian to me to say that so-and-so is with God now. It just sounds so Christian. I can't do it. Another reason why Judaism, why, why organized Judaism has given up on teaching the traditional teachings about life in the world to come, is that, and this is what I was taught, well, you know, Christians believe in the, the world to come, and that's their real destiny, that's what they focus on. We focus on this world, the world that is, Haolam Hazet, not Haolam Haba. And so that's why we don't talk about it, because we want to focus on this world and tikkun olam, fixing this world, and not the next world. That's another reason. Another reason why Jews have lost its, our traditional belief in life after death has to do with the origins of Reform Judaism in 1824 in Frankfurt and Conservative Judaism and Reconstructionist Judaism later, and, and that is the rationalist origins of Reform Judaism. Our movement was founded in 1823 and, and 24 in Frankfurt at the height of the philosophical traditions of 19th century German idealism. Philosophers like Hegel, Schelling, Fichte, earlier Kant, had all taught that history and reason and science and evidence were the only reliable truth tests. Their rationalist teachings influenced the teachings of Abraham Geiger, Ludwig Philipson, Hermann Kohn, Kaufman Kohler, David Einhorn, and all the founding theologians of Reform Judaism in Germany and later in America. In this German 19th century idealist rationalist world, a gauzy, unprovable, teaching about the destination of a soul after death did not fit in theologically or intellectually. Reformed Judaism also opposed Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, for the very same reason. It was irrational, and therefore it was, in their view, stupid and wrong. Then they went ahead and taught children about how all the animals in the world got into the same boat. I'm just saying, what looks irrational to you depends on what looks irrational just to you. For these and many other reasons, I, I really don't want to go into deep more deeply. Um, we have given away our bananas. And this is a time for me to tell you the bananas. Judaism believes in the world to come. Now, at the moment, the only proof you have of that is that some guy in a Zoom lecture named Gelman says Judaism teaches this. 
but you should be more critical, as I'm sure you are, and, and want the proof. You want the bananas. So here are the bananas. We read in Pirkei Avot 4.16, Haolam hazeh domel leprozdor bifnei haolam haba. This is Pirkei Avot, the most famous of all the Mishnayot. And this is in uh, Arba, this is 4, Mindalit uh, 16. This world is just a waiting room for the world to come. That's what they taught. In about 417, One hour of bliss in the world to come. One hour of bliss in the world to come is better than all of the happiness in the world that is. That's Judaism, folks. That's at the heart of our teaching. The most famous Mishnah there is. And one of my famous, fam, favorites, Ein tov ba'olam yitukan ba'olam There is nothing, no good thing in this world, which includes perfect, I would say, perfect sweet corn with butter, which is pretty much perfect to my mind. There's, there's nothing, even buttered sweet corn, nothing in this world which is not better in the world to come. Hard to believe they have better corn, but they must. Furthermore, another, some more bananas for you. I want to make this case beyond any doubt. When I recite the only Jewish prayer for the dead, you know, the Kaddish is a prayer we say at death, but it's not for the dead. It has nothing to do with death. It doesn't talk about death. It just talks about how we praise God's name. But the prayer for death we do have is, of course, the El Mole Rachamim. I sent a link to it, but in the middle, it's all right, because in the middle of the the prayer of El Mole Rachamim, in the traditional version, we read, Began Eden Menuchato, if it's a, a man who died, or Began Eden Menuchata, and that means may his or her resting place be in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the destiny of the righteous. We have the destiny of the wicked, which is uh, Sheol, or Gehenna in the rabbinic period. And hell is only for the truly wicked. We, I don't want to go into the details of hell. But it basically is like listening to all my old sermons when you're tied to a chair. I think that's, that's as close as I can get to it. Above all the other texts, and, and this, as I would say, Your Honor, I rest my case. Above all the other texts that I offer up to you as proof that belief in heaven is at the core of our faith, is the, the blessing, I, I ask you and I answer, what is the really the greatest honor you can be given? In, in, a, in shul, and of course, the greatest honor you can be given is an aliyah to the Torah. And the blessing after the reading of the Torah, the highest honor you can be given, includes, begins, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech, Elohim Asher Natan Lanu Torah Demet. You are blessed, O Lord our God, who's given us a uh, a Torah of truth. So it's, it's saying, listen, we just read the Torah, but we don't want you to think it's just an old book of stories for, kill, for kids. The Torah is true. And it continues, and who has implanted within us eternal life. Now, there it is, the end of the reading of the Torah for your section, for your aliyah. 
you say the bracha, which invokes the world to come. You'd say, why is it that people, the Jews, don't understand that they've just invoked the world to come? Ah, and the reason is they're reading it in Hebrew and they don't know what Hebrew means. They never translate it. So they're reading it. And in fact, the Hebrew they're using, I, I will quote from my own synagogue on Long Island for 40 years. This is a compilation of most of the brachas after the Torah that relatives who got called up for an aliyah and had never been called up before would say. They're, they would normally say the Hebrew this way. Baruch Hashem and I shall shakti, shall shakti, shall Shabbos. That's pretty much the way it went. And I had to say, Amen, I think. So people are reading a bracha about life after death at the highest moment of the highest honor. I'm sure the rabbi said, look, if this doesn't convince them that we have a, a faith, a religion, a teaching, that death is not the end of us. I don't know what we can do. And it didn't convince them, and it didn't work. Now, just a brief word about the phrasing, very interesting. Why is the verb nata implanted, the verb used in the bracha? God, it says God is implanted within us eternal life. And the answer to, is, is it's hard to know. Uh, if God simply gave us eternal life, simply placed eternal life within us, no action would be needed on our part. But God plants eternal life within us, which means that we must nurture it or it will wither and die. We must tend our souls as everything planted must be tended. The immortality of our souls is not an attribute. It is an acquisition, or better yet, it is a discovery. The other word that deserves our attention is bitochenu. It's implanted bitochenu within us. Eternal life is something deep inside us, not worn on our surface, but hidden in our depths. The rabbis made a midrash on this word. They said that the angels were angry at the God's creating people and furious at the creation of the human soul as immortal, and they sought to hide the fact of the immortality of the soul from people. First, they considered hiding this fact on the highest mountain or in the depths of the sea. But in the end, the most clever angels prevailed, and they decided to hide human immortality and Selim Elohim, the image of God, within each human being, because they decided the last place people will look for this gift of God is inside each other. So we must look beyond the surface to see the sparkle of God's grace and love in each of us. Belief in the divine dignity of each person made in the image of God leads directly and inexorably to a belief in a place for the divine soul after our perishable bodies have well, perish. Uh, I'm going to forego a discussion about Chiyatam in the Guru prayer of the Amida, but basically there is an alternative idea uh, to eternal life after death, and that is that after we die, and Neil Gilman has developed this in his book uh, about life after death and and he believes that the, the essential Jewish teaching, the authentic one, is not the immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body and its reunification with the soul. That's called Tchiyat It's it's very difficult to take this seriously because of people who were immolated, turned to ash. The rabbis even uh, write uh, in Sefer, Sadia writes about it, in Sefer Emanot Um 
in the ninth century, the first Jewish philosopher. Suppose a lion would eat a man, and then the lion would drown and a fish would eat the lion's carcass, and then the fish would be caught and the man would eat him, and then the man would be burned and turned into ashes. Whence would the creator restore the first man? Would he do it from the lion or the fish or the second man or the fire or the ashes? So obviously, Sadia is saying, look, this is a ridiculous belief that our bodies are somehow revived and put together again. You know that's why in Orthodox tradition, body parts are buried in your grave so that you have all your parts when you're resurrected at the messianic time. The liberal branches of Judaism, reform, conservative, all of them, pretty much rejected the Chayat HaMetim. Um, even in Brachot 11a, there's a discussion about Mechayei Akol, why the, that's put in instead of Mechayei Metim. Rabbi Kaufman Kohler, one of the founders of Reform Judaism in America, who convened the 1885 conference, which defined Reform Judaism, and its theology wrote, he recognizes the unchangeable will of an all-wise, all-ruling God and the immutable laws of nature, must find it impossible to praise God according to the traditional formula as the reviver of the dead, but will avail himself instead of the expression used in the Union Prayer Book after the pattern of Einhorn, he who has implanted within us immortal life. So, those are the bananas. There's more bananas, but it's, a, it's enough for now. And I want to get to our question period. But I want to conclude with um, a challenge to you. Some of you may be sitting back, you know, okay, gentlemen, convince me that there's life after death, because I'm not buying it. I don't believe it. I believe when we die, the worms eat us up, and that's the end of the story. Okay, so let me confront you, challenge you, push back at you. Let me present a challenge to you. Because these choices are not choices that I just thought up. They are philosophically the only choices you face and I face. After we die, there is something or there is nothing. That's it. It's one or the other. Death is either the end of us, or it is not the end of us. That's your choice. That's our choice. Now, my first teacher was a great rabbi, still is a great rabbi, and he, was, he became an atheist because of the challenge of the Holocaust. He was the author of After Auschwitz. His name was is Richard Rubenstein. And he embraced, he embraced in a courageous way, but a frightening way to me, the idea that there is nothing after death. And I want to read from one of his writings and conclude with this and ask you, not whether you think Richard Rubenstein is right, but could you live with this as a philosophy of your life? Could you live without hope? Rubenstein wrote, I am convinced that I have arisen out of nothingness and I am destined to return to nothingness. All human beings are locked in the same fatality. In the final analysis, omnipotent nothingness was Lord of all creation. Nothing in the bleak, cold, unfeeling universe was remotely concerned with human aspiration and longing. Only death perfects life and ends its problems. God can only redeem by slaying. We have nothing to hope for beyond what we are capable of creating in the time allotted to us. In the final analysis, all things crumble away 
into the nothingness, which is at the beginning and end of creation. That's Rubenstein. So my final words to you are, are these, a question. Did your parents or grandparents ever sing lullabies to you? Did they ever sing lullabies to you? And if you answer yes, as I'm certain you will, I would then say, when your parents or grandparents sang to you a lullaby, no matter the words of the lullaby, they were really singing these words. These are the words of every lullaby. Everything is going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right, Bobolet. Despite the indisputable fact that someday both your mother and your father and your grandparents and you, all of us, will die. Even so, they sang the lullaby to give you hope in the night. Olam haba, my friends. Olam haba is the lullaby of Judaism. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Gelman. Um, fascinating presentation. I'm going to take the privilege of the first two questions here before we open it up. Um, firstly, um, my first question is that your primary, your primary proofs are Torah. Your primary proofs are Torah, what you refer to as the bananas. <laughs> um, and um, in, as you know, in traditional Judaism, let's just call it orthodoxy for now, the Torah is the word of God. And in Reformed Judaism, uh, the, Torah, the Torah is the written word of man, uh, maybe inspired by God or whatever the case is. And so I wonder how you think of sort of the authority of Torah on theological matters as sources, as a, as a liberal Jew, a liberal, you know, being Reformed Jew. Um, you talked a little bit about the human level, the desire for hope, the meaningful belief. But I wonder, like, how you think about the authority of such a, a, a claim. That's my first question. My second question is, you know, one of the most compelling uh, explanations I've heard as to why there's an afterlife is because I cannot live in a world where, the, where uh, Hitler, Hitler has the same fate as the Holocaust victims, right? If Hitler has the same fate as the Holocaust victims, then um, there either is no God or that God is not good. And um, the basis of all theology, if there's a God, then that God is good. And so I wonder how does theodicy how does theodicy, the notion of rectification of, of injustices of this world, play into how you think about the afterlife as well? Okay, uh, good questions. Uh, the first is the question of authority. Uh, I was describing what Judaism teaches. The, and in order to describe what Judaism teaches, you have to go to Torah. You can't just say, and I also described what some liberal Jews like Kaufman Kohler taught, in modifying Chiyadamitim, for example. So it's not anywhere near as simple, and I know you don't mean it this way, as either Torah has authority or Torah doesn't have authority. It's not at all that simple. It's that Torah presents a historical record of our understanding of how God has revealed God's self to us. And we have a responsibility to accept the teaching of Torah in this or that regard, or not accepted the traditions, and it isn't even Torah, but it's a, a minhag that women can't read from the Torah. We don't accept that. So we make that choice. However, there are other authorities, which I didn't go into. The belief in life after death is not just a belief in Torah. The Torah teaches us that death is not the end of us. There are other issues, and in order to deal with it, you'd have to take my class, Introduction to Theology, but we can't do that now. But basically, here are the main points that I would develop in that class. And one is that consciousness is not physical. Once we realize that no scientist has been able to locate the locus of consciousness, we have a good way bigger than first step in proving that we have a soul. Our souls are not physical. 
even though physical things are impermanent, there is no reason to conclude that immaterial things like our souls could not be permanent, and there is a rational probability that our souls are immortal. There's also a rational probability, forget Torah, that consciousness is not physical. There's also the phenomenology of the eye. I, my doctorate is in European phenomenology, uh, an area of philosophy so abstruse even I don't understand it. Uh, the phenomenology of the eye. My conscious, it, let me say it in a, in a simple way. My consciousness of my own identity survives over many physical changes in my life. I just went through old pictures. We just moved and I went through old pictures and I look at the pictures of me as a child. And I say, what, what, is, what is there about those pictures that is a photograph of a person that's also me? There's nothing except I, the I, the Mark Gelman. That doesn't change between my baby pictures and, and now, right now. Everything else changes, but there's a continuity of the I. And my consciousness of my own identity survived all those physical changes in my life. And this opens the rational possibility that consciousness survives my physical death as well. And the final rational point that has nothing to do with Torah, we did a piece for CBS on 48 Hours, Tommy and I, on NDEs, they're called, near-death experiences. And these are experiences of people who technically died and came back and, you know, they saw the tunnel and the light and all these stories where they floated above their body or they saw stuff they could never have seen before. And near-death experiences reveal strikingly similar descriptions of life after death, as well as providing information that could not be known in any other way. For example, a blind woman who technically died and was brought back, hypothermia, identified the Mickey Mouse tie being worn by the emergency room physician who, who took care of her. She could never have seen that. So there, there are rational reasons to believe that, our, that, that we have a soul and that it lives on beyond death. Torah is in conformity. Torah, Shmuel, hello. Torah is in conformity to those rational probabilities. If you want total, absolute proof, you know, there's Brian Weiss, many lives, many masters, who believes that through hypnosis he has discovered that people can recall details of previous lives. You, you have to look at other things, but my judgment as a philosopher is that Aristotle is right, that it, that it is simply wrong to ask of a discipline a level of certainty that the discipline cannot provide. Mathematics provides us a level of discipline for the truth that ethics does not. It doesn't mean there aren't true ethical beliefs. It just means they aren't the same as the law of the excluded middle or the Pythagorean theorem. So that's, that's my answer on, on, the, on your question. Oh, on the, oh, the question of justice. Yes, absolutely. Justice is absolutely one of the reasons we believe in Olam Habo. That we believe that the scales of justice are evened out. And we believe, and this is one of the great moments of pride I have in Judaism, We don't have that Christian problem of a limited life after death for only those who have accepted Jesus. We don't have that problem. Our teaching is that the righteous of all nations inherit the Olam Haba, have a share in it. So, I've answered both your questions. Authority comes from reason and Torah, and the Olam Haba is where the scales of justice are evened up. Awesome, thank you. Okay, let's hear some other questions, friends. Thank you, Rabbi Gilman. You're welcome. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Oh, I, I have a question. Kathleen Darrow here. Um, right. I put it in the chat, 
but uh, probably got lost in among all the other things. Rabbi Gelman, um, I very much agree with you and appreciate very much what you're saying here today. Um, why is it that Jews can accept belief in God, which, although described in Torah, is really not provable, certainly not by the scientific world, uh, but refuse to accept the belief in heaven or life after death? Okay, good question. I think one comes from the other. I think the people who can't accept life after death are also people who can't accept God. Mm. I think it, it, one comes from the other. It's obvious that if there's no God and we aren't made in the image of God because God does not exist, we also have no soul, which is our piece of God within us. We don't have that. So that means we're just material beings. We're a bunch of DNA goo. We're a bunch of goo. And that goo goes back into the earth and the worms eat it up the end. And, and if people believe that, then they have to face the Richard Rubenstein quote. Can you live in a life where there is absolute nothingness? You are in a world where there is no purpose, no meaning, no help, no future, no God, no heaven. Now, I, I understand as a philosopher, wanting there to be a heaven doesn't mean there is a heaven. Wanting that there should be a God, that there is a God, doesn't mean there is a God. I, I fully understand that. But I believe there are good rational reasons to believe that God exists, I, I believe it can be proved in, in a variety of proofs. And I also believe that we are made in the image of that God and that we have a soul. Now, one of the problems is that there is no mention of the soul in the whole Hanach, in the whole Hebrew Bible. Everything about the soul comes from post-biblical Judaism. It came from our contact with Greek philosophy, which happened after the conquest of Israel in 331 before the Common Era by Alexander, when all of these young rabbinic scholars, they weren't even rabbis then, but they were interested and, and fascinated because Alexander the Great came with his tutor to Israel. And his tutor was Aristotle. So the smartest man who ever lived was there. And he explained to these Jewish intellectuals his concept of matter and form, how everything in the world is made up of matter, which is the principle of actuality, and form, which is the principle of potentiality, and how they interact. And Aristotle and Plato had a fight about that, whether it was matter and form in the thing or above the thing, a, a dispute that's irrelevant to this discussion. But it was the Greeks who taught Jews that we are not monolithic beings who have a nephesh, which is all the Bible knows, nephesh. They said we have a neshama, which is not biblical. We have a soul, a soul. In the Bible, our nephesh is just the thing that makes us alive, but there's no reference to a soul, none. And that's another problem for Jews, because when we send our children to schools other than Orthodox schools, and I was fortunate to have an Orthodox education as well as a reform education, as well as a secular education. I was a studying fool. I, I couldn't get enough learning. Uh, but we teach kids in religious school, whatever they learn, if they learn anything, and it's highly doubtful that they learn much, they're only reading the Bible. And I defy you. I, defy, I always present a challenge. Sometimes I put money down on it. I said, can you give me a curriculum of any religious school in America where the topic of life after death is taught? 
I don't think you can. I don't think you can. We don't teach children this. Now, every week there was an Ask the Rabbi session in my synagogue, every week, for every grade. And uh, I would teach them about life after death. But I, I say again, even I, who have, I felt I was very well educated and I had a critical mind, I missed this. I missed it. And it took a priest, my best friend. It took Tommy Hartman to enlighten me. He would say, why don't you talk about heaven? Don't you believe in heaven? I said, of course we do. And he said, well, is there a bigger question? Is there a bigger topic? Is there a bigger fear? So I'm still waiting for you to hear. And, and Shmuley, I, I present this to you. Why is it, even in the in yeshivish world, you don't get this? Olam Abba is not a topic that you hear much about. But particularly in the non-yeshiva world, why is it? You're in a coalition of synagogues. You talk to rabbis, you know what goes on. Why is this topic the only one that matters? It's the only one that matters. It's the only question that matters, and it's the only question we never talk about. And then we wonder, well, why is it that people don't come? You know why? You know what it's like? It's like those tests where, you know, you let little kids eat Twinkies. You know, they, you put food in front of them, and if they want to only eat Twinkies, they only eat Twinkies. And then they get sick. And you say, why are they, you know, it's no mystery why they're sick. They have an urge to eat something nutritious, but they, the sugar seduces them. I think politics has seduced us. I think we are very close to having synagogues with signs on the front. This is a democratic synagogue and signs on the other, this is a Republican synagogue, which there probably wouldn't be any of those. But it's, we're very close to that point, that point, where, where you come for some political indoctrination. I find that just, I, I despair from this. Not that I don't have views on things, political views, but here we have an institution that was built to bring hope to people in the face of death. And the one thing we've decided not to do is bring hope to people in the face of death. Why? Shmuley, why is this? <laughs> and I'm not asking it as a rhetorical question because yeah, I yeah. really don't know the answer. Yeah, well, so, uh, so something I just put in the chat over there on the side, but I'm happy to speak at as well. It is very, very common, very, very common, as, as you'll know better than I do, that con congregants will tell rabbis why they ran away from synagogue. And one of the reasons they'll say was it was strict and it was judgmental. And so I don't want anything to do with that exclusive, strict, judgmental. And the afterlife to some implies a judging God. And, and judging God is not in today. We want a loving God. Judging God is out of fashion. And so to talk about the afterlife means I'm judged again. I'm in judgment again. I want a welcoming, inclusive place that doesn't have judgment. That's one of the most common reasons I hear why we shouldn't talk about this, because it touches on the realm of God as judge and judgment. Okay, let me just say about that. That requires giving up the entire holiday of Yom Kippur. I mean, what, what the hell are we doing on Yom Kippur? And secondly, what in the world makes people think that Olam Haba is judgmental? It's quite the opposite. Olam Haba is an act of chesed. It's an act of mercy, because if God was truly judgmental, none of us would merit the world to come. None of us would merit it. We aren't good enough. Ain banu masim, we have no, we, we have no deeds. We aren't good enough. So the, the fact that there is an olam haba is proof that God is merciful, not judgmental, receiving, fuzzy, warm, inviting, 
politically correct, all of the things. And, and there's no other way to see it. It's not, I mean, they, you, if you're acting like it's some fundamentalist Christianity, or you're going to burn in hell, you're going to burn in hell. Well, we never teach that. Right. So I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know what, what people who say their judgment, I, I think their critique is correct about rabbis. But I don't think it has anything to do with Olam Haba. It has to do with rabbis who know as much about politics as the guy selling avocados. All of a sudden stand up there and they say, here's what I think we need to do, and this is an obscenity, and this is systemic this and that. Whatever they say, whether it's true or not true, doesn't matter. The point is, they don't know. They're not experts in that. So actually, in this session, I'm going to open up for the next question. You're actually offering not just a vision, but really a pretty scathing critique. Yeah. The in America, American Judaism has lost its priorities. It has become overly politicized and has lost its theological roots. Um, and the theological root that matters is that death is not the end of us. There's other theological ideas okay, excellent. that have implications for our life. But this one, right. this one we can't live without. Right, right. Beautiful. Okay, do we have another question here? I know we're limited on time. Let's see if we have time for one last question. I have one little question. Um, I'm listening to all this, and I'm thinking about the Zohar and everything that it says and presents about the cycle of life and souls and the elevation and everything. And I just, you know, is modern religion too turned away from the mystical view of things? Is there? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think <clears throat> the mystical view of the Zohar in this regard, which affirms reincarnation, is called Gilgul Hanishamot. Gilgul Hanishamot. And it's the belief that they're under the earth. It's really quite picturesque. Under the earth, they're tunnels, actual tunnels. And when you die, your neshama, your soul, separates from your body, goes down into the earth, and goes through the tunnels, which all end up in Yerushalayim. And then from there, they go up to the Olam Haba. Then, your soul spends a year, up to a year, which is why we say Kaddish, you know, for 11 months and a day. <laughs> because we believe that the person who died benefits from our, the mitzvahs that he or she taught us to do. And the only mitzvah that, that counts after they're dead is the mitzvah of saying Kaddish for them. But over a year maximum, the soul is debriefed from the life they, they lived on earth. And basically it's asked this question, why did you fear what you feared? Why were you afraid of what you were afraid of? You didn't need to be afraid. And then they're, they're stuffed into a little fetus. And just as the fetus is through the birth canal, an angel, and this is actually a Greek idea as well, this is where the Jew, we got it from them. This is called the philtrum, this little dent on your upper lip. The angel comes, and that's what the Midrash was, and the Greek teaching, it touches you on the philtrum and wipes out your, your memory of your previous life. And then you live on again in another life. That's what Brian Weiss believes is true. And otherwise you come out saying, boy, it was stuffy in there. And that would freak out people in the delivery room. So you have to forget your previous life. But this idea of the mystics is completely irrational, and yet so full of love and hope that I find it endearing, and I have said to many people that I believe in reincarnation. I, I have no proof for it, but I believe that it's 
that, that it's not a completely ridiculous idea that we live again. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Rabbi Gelman. We ended right on time here. This was a fascinating presentation. And uh, you've raised a lot of big questions, offered a lot of compelling arguments. And we hope, we hope to have many more opportunities to learn with you in the future. I hope so too. We wish you good health, everyone. We, um, we hope you'll pick up a membership if you have not yet to continue to sustain our work at BBM. And uh, we look forward to uh, the starting the thickness of our season right now. We've got multiple events every week, sometimes multiple a day. And we look forward to continuing our learning together. Wishing everyone a great rest of your day and Shabbat Shalom.